Um, we're going to be in Acts 8 today. We're continuing our Multiply series. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Acts 8. Uh, if you have the Version app on your phone, you can look in at events. And if you search Church at Cane Bay, all of our notes will be in there as well. So as you're flipping to that, um, I want to tell you guys just a quick story. So um, when I was 14 years old, uh, my parents, my family moved up from Florida where I was raised up to Michigan. And um, I had to leave, you know, all my friends, and it was tough. It's a, it's a tough age to, like, you know, have to make a transition like that. And, um, you know, we were excited about the future, but I just didn't want to leave all my friends. And, um, and uh, I remember, like, the first few months up in Michigan were really uh, lonely for me, and they were tough. I mean, I had some built-in friends because I was, I was homeschooled, so I had, like, I have six younger siblings, so I had... I had other friends, you know, that were in the house. But other than that, I didn't go to school. I didn't have any, like, built-in friends. And it was just a little lonely at first. And, and on top of that, as I mentioned, I'm an introvert. So it was kind of, like, hard for me to, like, meet people and get out of my comfort zone and have, you know, conversations and make friends and stuff like that. And, um, and we started going to this church, uh, and I was going to this youth group, and I met these, these two friends, um, and they were named JJ and Rachel. And JJ and Rachel were a couple. Um, they were dating and, uh, and they started inviting me to go and hang out, like, quite a bit. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, because I wasn't old enough to drive yet, but they were. So we'd drive around in, in JJ's car, you know, they listened to cool music. And I just thought that they were the coolest. And I was like, man, it's so cool that I have these friends. And they would invite me to go hang out, like, oh, quite a bit. And so um, I was hanging out with them and stuff. And, and I forget who said it at one point, um, but somebody brought it to my attention, like, hey, JJ and Rachel are a couple, like they're dating. Isn't it kind of weird that they just keep inviting you to everything and you're kind of like the third wheel? And I was like, no, they just really like me. Like, and, and I started to think about it, and as I started to process it, I went, oh wait, one of their parents has a rule that they can't be alone together. And so that's why they're inviting the younger guy to go hang out with them, right? And it started to make sense. I started to remember situations that I had kind of just overlooked. Like, we'd be watching a movie, and they would sneak off into a different room together for a few minutes. And I just, okay, I guess they didn't feel like watching the movie, right? Um, and all of a sudden, like, my, na- my naivety started to kind of wear off. And I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> they didn't want me to be their friend. They wanted me because they needed somebody, Right? Um, and I think a lot of us have experienced that in one way or another. Uh, just one of those moments where you go, man, I don't, think, I don't think they wanted me. I think they were just using me, right? I don't think they wanted me for me. I think they just wanted me for, for something that I had to offer them. And so as we continue our Multiply series today, and we're working our way through chapter 8 of Acts, if you're new here or if you, if, if you haven't been in a while, um, we've been walking through the book of Acts, and we've been kind of journeying through this book all year, um, and it's been really, really powerful. So today we're in chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 9. There's a little bit of this in the story. So um, before we jump into it, I just want to catch you up on where we're at, because it's kind of important for us to understand what's going on in the story. And so um, in the early church in Jerusalem, there were these uh, Greek widows that were getting overlooked. Um, they, they weren't getting the food that they were supposed to be distributed. And so the apostles um, kind of appointed these seven men uh, to, to, to kind of man the ship, if you will. The, these, they were, these were going to be the guys that were going to take care of these widows. And they, they appointed seven men that were of Greek descent. And two of those men, one of them was named Stephen, and one of them was named Philip. And those are the two that we're focusing on kind of in these last couple of chapters. Well, what happens with Stephen is Stephen goes and he just starts 
He's on fire for Jesus. He starts preaching the gospel, and the Jewish priesthood's not happy with that. And so they call Stephen in, and they question him. And as they're questioning him, he gets this boldness from the Holy Spirit, and he just preaches the gospel, like, boldly. Uh, And it makes the Jewish priesthood so angry that they stone him to death. And Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. It's crazy. And so because this happens, and it happens in such a public way, the believers in Jerusalem, even though there were so many people turning to Jesus and being baptized, and thousands and thousands, this movement is starting, a wildfire is spreading, the believers in Jerusalem are like, I think we got to get out of here, or we're all going to end up like this guy. Right? And so they start scattering all around to all the different regions. Well, one of the men that was scattered was named Philip. And Philip was just a normal guy. He wasn't an apostle. He's just a normal follower of Jesus. And he gets sent to Samaria. And so where we, la- where we ended last week, um, there's this great line in verse 8 that says there was great joy in the city. Uh, and it's because Philip is sent to Samaria and he preaches the gospel there and people are turning to Jesus left and right and it's just this amazing thing. And this is where we pick up here in chapter 8. So if you'll read with me, we'll start in verse 9. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere And was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So, we're introduced to this man here. He's like a magician or a sorcerer named Simon. It's already off to like a little bit of a weird start, right? When I think of Simon, I like to picture like an ancient Middle Eastern version of Chris Angel, Mind Freak. You guys know? No? Only like a few of you get that reference. But anyway, I like to picture... I like to picture this like magician, sorcerer kind of guy, right? This is who, this is who Simon, maybe not exactly like that, but yeah, the, this is who Simon is, right? And, and the interesting thing is, is that the Bible says that he, people were attentive to him, people paid attention to him, um, and he had he'd kind of accrued a big following for himself. So I think it's, it's safe to assume that he probably had a good bit of wealth and fame and influence and power because of these abilities that he had. Now, an interesting thing is that when we see in the Bible that somebody has abilities, supernatural abilities, but they don't come from the power of God, um, most of the time in the Bible, that's not a good thing. Most of the time in the Bible, it's kind of assumed that he's, you know, we, they use the word sorcerer. It's almost like he's into black magic or he's, he's, he's getting his power from the devil or, or something of the sort. Now, now, that's not what Luke says here in Acts, but it's just kind of inferred that this is where he's getting his powers from. And the interesting thing is, is that the people that are following Simon are calling him the great power of God. So we already see Simon's kind of stealing some glory from God with his, with his abilities, if you will, and that's, that's totally not cool. Um, so verse 12 says that Philip shows up and he starts preaching the gospel. But not only is he preaching the gospel, 
Everywhere he goes, there are people being healed. There are demons being cast out. I mean, Acts specifically says that there are paralytic people that have been healed and now they're walking. It's all this crazy stuff, right? And so all these signs and wonders and miracles are accompanying Philip and his crew as they march through Samaria, and they're just preaching the gospel. And, and, it, and it gets Simon's attention. I just want to share something really quick. Uh, with you that, that kind of stuck out to me at the beginning of this passage before we dive into the rest of it. And the thing that kind of stuck out to me as I was reading is, is Scripture says that both men and women were being baptized. It's kind of Luke's way of saying a lot of people. People were turning to Jesus in droves. Now, this sounds like a pretty normal thing that we would have read anywhere in the book of Acts, right? Um, because this is what happens when Jesus' people go other places. But the interesting thing is, is that the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. They hated each other, in fact. And they had these religious beliefs, deeply held religious beliefs, that, drew, that drove a wedge in between them. So the Samaritans, they had this mountain, and they believed that you had to worship on this mountain, and that that was the only real way to worship God. And the Jews, they believed that you worship in Jerusalem, and that that's the only way, real way that you can worship God. And so basically the Samaritans are telling the Jews, like, you're doing it wrong, you're not real. And the Jews are saying the same things back to the Samaritans. And it went for generations and generations, a lot of division and strife and hatred in between these two people groups. And Philip comes from Jerusalem... He's, he's Greek, he's a Gentile, but he converts to Judaism and he comes from Jerusalem and he goes to Samaria where the people are supposed to hate him. And what happens? He just meets needs and preaches the gospel and people turn to Jesus in droves. Listen, what we don't see in Acts is we don't see an early church that all believes the exact same things. What we don't see in Acts is we don't see an early church that all has the exact same value system. What we don't see in Acts, we don't see a church that all looks the same, thinks the same, believes the same, has the same political ideals, has the same values. This is not what we're seeing in Acts. What we see in Acts is this messy, ragtag group of people that heard the gospel and are on fire to go tell everyone. That's what we see in Acts. And the Holy Spirit moves in such a powerful way. What I want us to take from this first part of the passage is that the simple gospel unites. Listen, we had very different kinds of people coming together because of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but for me, I know sometimes I'm hesitant to share Jesus with people that God puts in my life. Maybe even people that I know God has kind of nudged me or urged me to share the gospel with. Because there's a part of me that feels like, man, I, if I open that can of worms, there's just we're going to disagree on so many things, and I'm going to have to come up with reasons why, uh, why I think differently than them. Or, or I, there's this weird part of me that feels like I'm going to have to get all of their systematic theology all ironed out and straight. You know what I mean? Like, and what we see Philip do here is he goes to Samaria, and did you see this? It. Acts doesn't tell us that he didn't even talk about where to worship. He didn't say, okay, so you guys say the mountain and the Jews say Jerusalem and let's look back on the scriptures and let's reason. He doesn't even address the topic because that's not a gospel issue. He goes into Samaria and it's very simple. He meets physical needs. They're healing people. He meets physical needs and he preaches the gospel. 
He goes into Samaria, he says, there is a man named Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinless death on your behalf. He rose again, and he invites you into resurrection life. Do you want a part of it? And it's really that simple, and it's really that straightforward. And I think that you would be surprised, because I've been surprised, how many people, maybe even people that I didn't think would be open to it, would be open to having a conversation about Jesus. If we start the conversation about some other more contentious topic, then it might get a little hairy, right? But I think a lot of the time it's, it's easy for us to just say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? And that's a really good way in, as we just meet needs and we share the simple gospel, and the simple gospel unites people that are very different from each other. So let's, let's move on. In, uh, in verse 13, it says, Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So, Simon gets baptized too. This is cool, right? You would think it's cool. We're going to see later in the passage, it's actually not that great. But, but at first glance, we're going, man, Simon's powerful. He's got some influence. He's got some wealth. Like, people are attentive to him, is what Scripture said. So people listen to what he has to say. They care and value what he has to say, right? So if this kind of guy comes to Jesus, and he starts preaching the gospel, man, how many more people are going to come to Jesus because of this? But, but Luke actually gives us a clue right here in this verse, what's actually happening. Do you notice, it doesn't say that he was amazed by Jesus. It doesn't say he was interested in the gospel. It says that he was amazed by what? The signs and miracles. I think it's intentional that Luke uses the word sign here. Think about a sign when you're driving on the freeway, Right? What does a sign do? It points to something, right? If I'm driving on the freeway and I see a sign that says Charleston, I'm not trying to go to the sign. I'm trying to go to Charleston, right? You don't go to the sign. You go to the thing that the sign points to. And what Luke is saying here is that Simon's kind of missing the point because he sees the sign and he's amazed at the sign. But see, when God works miracles and wonders through his people, when God does it through the apostles and acts, when God does miracles today, they are to point to him and to his glory and his goodness. Even as we prayed for our missionary partners this morning and we pray for a miracle earnestly, we point for that so that God might be lifted up, that God might be glorified, that people might see how great God is, not how great we are, right? But Simon's interested in the signs and the miracles. He's not interested in Jesus. He's interested in the gifts, but he's not really interested in the giver. Simon's interested in the gifts, but he's not interested in the giver. Let's keep working our way through the passage here. Verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, 
because he had not come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of us know that when we say yes to Jesus, that he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, right? And so this is kind of a weird passage, and I'll be honest with you, different branches of Christianity throughout history have interpreted this differently, um, and it's caused denominational breaks and different things like that. We don't have a lot of time to dig real deep into what's going on here, but I do want to share just one thought with you um, and why I think that this is important for us to, to notice what's happening here. So if we rewind to Acts 2, Acts chapter 2, maybe some of y'all were here, maybe you weren't, what happens is there are Jewish believers in the upper room praying because when Jesus left, he said he told them to pray and to wait. And so they're in this upper room and they're praying and there's this amazing outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit falls on them, and there's this big outward dramatic display that made it very obvious that the Holy Spirit had come in power, and now this Holy Spirit dwells in God's people, right? And so this happens in Acts 2. I want you to remember the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other, right? They didn't get along. Could you imagine the arguments that would have happened, and that may still be happening this day if the Holy Spirit didn't come in power in Samaria just like it did in Jerusalem. Like, the Jews get this outward, obvious display, and the Samaritans are like, I, I, think, I think it happened. Hmm? Maybe, yeah, I mean, they said it happened, <laughs> right? Could you imagine? I mean, the Jews would have had the right to say, hey, I mean, yeah, maybe you do have the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's a gift that God's given you, but, but it's probably not as real as the one that we got, right? Because, I mean, did you see what happened, right? And so what happens is Peter and John come from Jerusalem, and they come to Samaria, and they lay their hands on these believers, and the Holy Spirit falls on them as well. I think that it's really simple here. I think that what this passage is saying is that God doesn't play favorites. That God didn't value the Jewish believers any more than he valued the Samaritan believers. And later on in Acts, we're going to see another occasion of this happen with the Gentiles. Which basically means anybody that's not Jewish. And so I think that what's happening here is God's making it very clear. The same spirit that I gave to the Jews, the spirit that moves in power and that indwells God's people, is the exact same spirit that I gave to the Samaritans. And God doesn't play favorites. So let's, let's move on. The next part of this story is where things get really interesting to me. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. You see what's happening here? Simon sees this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he sees the Holy Spirit come in power on these Samaritan believers. And what does he say? Dude, that's a cool trick. How, how much do you need me to pay you to show me how to do that? Do you see what's happening? He's like, yo, that was kind of cool. Like, uh, I mean, you just put your hands on him and then like the Spirit, like, that's pretty cool. Like, Man, could you imagine? I mean, I can do some pretty cool tricks, but I can't do anything like that. 
And he offers them money to show them how to do this, right? And, and it's becoming clearer and clearer as we walk through the passage. Simon is enamored with the gifts, but he doesn't really care that much about the giver. You hear me? Simon loves the idea of the power that the Holy Spirit gives you, but he, he couldn't really care less about Jesus and the gospel and giving his life over to the gospel. I think it's easy for us to think that we can't see ourselves in this story. I think it's easy. We hear the word sorcerer and we're like, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there are many sorcerers in the room today, are there? Like, maybe. I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe you've been to like Universal and you have the little Harry Potter wizard wand or whatever, but like, come on, you're not a real wizard. Um, when we hear the word sorcerer, I think a lot of us are like, all right, I'm checking out. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm good. Like, whatever, right? But I think that we see ourselves in Simon a lot more than we realize. I do. I see myself in Simon a lot more than I realize. You, th- you see, Simon wanted Jesus' power to build Simon's kingdom. See, Jesus gives us his power to build Jesus' kingdom. But Simon pretty clearly wanted Jesus' power to build Simon's kingdom. Are you following me? And I think that all too often, we're just trying to add Jesus into our lives. I think it's like we look at Jesus as like part of the winning recipe for a successful and happy life. That like if I just add a little bit of Jesus in with all the other things, then I'll be happy, successful. When things go wrong, I'll have, I've got a little buddy that's helping fix everything, right? And I think sometimes if we're not careful, we make it about us and building our kingdoms instead of Jesus, right? And what it boils down to is that we want the power of God without actually having to give our lives to the mission of God. I just want to add Jesus in to what I've already got going on. But that's, that's not how it works. And see, what I'm afraid of is that instead of following Jesus, Jesus told us to follow him. What I'm afraid of is instead of us following Jesus, we're asking Jesus to follow us. I think all too often I say, hey Jesus, I think I'm going to have this many kids. I think I'm going to live in this city. I think I'm going to do this kind of job. I think I'm going to have this much money. I think I'm going to live in this kind of house. I think I'm going to... You want to come along? You want to hop in the back seat? I'm going to figure this thing out. Right? Or we treat Jesus like he's a tool or a gadget. He's just having our tool belt. And, you know, if we ever need him, pull it out. And, hey, Jesus, can you... You know, all the, all the gaps, I mean, I got it, but like any gaps, anything that I'm not thinking about, or if I get sick, or my kid gets sick, or if, if you know, if, if I lose that job, or if I don't get that promotion, can you just kind of like step in and smooth everything over? If we're honest, I think that's the way a lot of us treat Jesus, and that's not how Jesus works. Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus told us that if anybody's going to be his follower, they must pick up their cross daily and follow 
him, which means that we die to ourselves so that Christ can live in us. That means that my desires, my mission, my kingdom dies. The thing that I'm trying to build, the life that I'm trying to build, the things that I want out of life, die. And that if I'm going to receive the Holy Spirit and I'm going to follow Jesus, that Jesus is going to use his power to build his kingdom in me and in my life and in my family. But I think all too often we're just saying, hey, Jesus, come along. Follow me. Help me out wherever I need it. And if we're real, a lot of us are asking Jesus to follow us. We're not actually following Jesus. And I see myself in that sometimes too. So let's, let's look at verse 20. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Peter just calls it out, doesn't he? He says, Simon, I see right through you. This ain't about Jesus. This ain't about the kingdom. You don't have any part in this spirit. You don't have any part in this power. You don't have any part in this kingdom because your heart's not right. You see, to Simon, it was pretty clear. It was about money and power and fame and influence. It wasn't about Jesus. And it's easy to point the finger at Simon and say, yeah, Simon, man, that guy was messed up. His heart wasn't right. But I think that we have to ask ourselves the question. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, we have to ask ourselves this question as well. Is my heart right? See, Simon didn't want what God wanted. He wanted what he wanted. And a lot of the time, I want what I want too. I think I like my plan for my life better than I like God's plan for my life. Let's be real. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is my heart right? Is my heart out of line with what God wants? And let's just be real with each other. Why do I follow Jesus? Do I follow him because I've been captivated by this man that gave up everything for me and I will give up everything for him to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or am I just asking Jesus to follow me as I do my thing? Why do I follow Jesus? What if the biggest obstacle to seeing kingdom multiplication, we're in this multiply series, what if the biggest obstacle to seeing kingdom multiplication is our hearts? What if it's as simple as that? Like, I don't really want what God wants. What if it's that simple? This is something that we're constantly checking ourselves on here at Church at Cane Bay. This is something that we constantly talk about and something that we try and keep at the forefront because it's so easy to have your heart slip out of line. It's so easy for you to not want what God wants. Listen, we have people ask us all the time. There are 18,000 people in Cane Bay and we built this tiny little room. Why did you do that? And this is, this is why, because we genuinely believe that God doesn't want to help us do our thing, that God couldn't care, doesn't care nearly as much about building church at Cane Bay as he does about building his kingdom. 
Oh, don't get me wrong. Growth's not a bad thing. As Dan said earlier, we have the biggest connect class that we had, we've ever had in Church of Cane Bay history going on right in that other room right now. That's amazing. That's a really cool thing. It's fantastic. But it's only fantastic if every person that walks through these doors, that we're finding ways to mobilize them to grow, give, and go for the kingdom of God. Because otherwise, we're just trying to add people and add chairs and add services and add families and grow the budget. And, and our organization thrives, but maybe the kingdom doesn't. This is why we say we're ascending church. This is why we've sent out our best, literally our best, on the missions field or to plant more churches. This is why. Because we say, listen, we know that we're joining Jesus in his work. He's not helping us do our thing. Jesus ain't helping us grow a nonprofit organization. Jesus is building his kingdom. And so we'll be in the right place if we join him in that work. That we would give every man, woman, and child multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. And so that's our heart. But let's be real, we have to check ourselves all the time. Because it's so easy for me to want my thing. It's so easy for me to want my plan for my life more than I want God's. And I want you guys to understand something. You notice Simon did have some level of power. Simon grew quite a following. Simon had some kind of abilities. He had some kind of power. And God does give us the grace that he'll let us do our thing. Listen, it's possible to grow a successful business or to get that promotion or to have a successful career without Jesus. It's possible to have a family without Jesus. It's possible to grow your social circle or to get into the house or live in the city that you've always wanted to without Jesus. I think it's even possible to grow a big church without Jesus. And see, God will let us build our own little kingdoms. And sometimes it doesn't come crashing down. But what we're risking is that we're building our little thing that's not going to last and we're forsaking Jesus' kingdom, which is the only thing that matters. So we can spend our lives building something that means absolutely nothing instead of joining Jesus on mission. You hear me? Let's look at verse 22. This is Peter's response. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. So the words that Peter uses here, especially this bound by wickedness phrase, it reminded me of a story that I heard recently. So there was this French journalist and reporter named Jean-Dominique Bauby, uh, and 
He was 43 years old when he had a massive stroke out of nowhere. And this stroke left him completely paralyzed. Now, he had full cognitive function. So he fully understood what was happening, and he was completely aware, and he was totally himself mentally and emotionally, but his body was completely frozen. He couldn't move anything except for one eyelid. This happened back in the 90s, and uh, it was like hard. It took a while for the doctors to even realize that this guy was still cognitive and you know, cognizant. He, w- he was breathing and he had a heartbeat, but they didn't know, you know how, how alive he actually was, if you will. But they started to realize, no, this guy's got full brain activity. He just can't communicate or move or do anything. They call it locked-in syndrome. You're locked into your body. Do you imagine? And so they devised this plan for him to communicate, and the plan was that they gave him an assistant, and the assistant would slowly read through the alphabet. And when she got to the correct letter, he would blink, and she would write the letter down, and then she'd start over. And again, and again, and again, until she made a word. And then she would continue to do this until he was able to spell out the sentence that he wanted to communicate. This is pretty wild, isn't it? It's very involved. Get this. He wrote his memoir using this communication process. It's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It was like a big bestseller in the 90s. I had no clue. Here's the thing. This is what I'm afraid of, and this is what I'm convicted of this week. My fear is that the American Western church is largely suffering from a spiritual locked-in syndrome. My fear is that Jesus, we're the body of Christ, right? And Jesus is the head. And my fear is that Jesus has all of this vision, all of these ways that the kingdom might be unlocked and expressed in the world, that people might see his glory, that people might come to know him, and the Western church is laying there with one eyelid blinking. And we're just stuck. We're locked in. Now don't get me wrong, God gets what God wants. And that's why we see places like Iran and other places that are, that are completely closed off to the gospel. Christianity is exploding because God's going to get what God wants. But if we're too locked up to be a part of it, we might miss out. And what I fear for us, for the Western church, but for church at Cane Bay for me, is that I'm too, I'm too locked up by pleasures and comforts and security and money and ambition and dreams for the way that I want to do things, that I have spiritual locked-in syndrome, and that Jesus wants to use me, but, but he can't. Because I won't let him. 
Because I want Jesus for what he can do for me, not for who he is. Because if I'm honest, I don't want what God wants. I don't want his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want my kingdom to come and my will to be done. And what I'm afraid of is that that's so many of us and we're so lulled into this paralysis, this spiritual paralysis, that we can't do nearly anything for the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I would love to see Jesus made famous in Cane Bay. I would love to see Jesus made famous in Somerville. I would love to see Jesus' glory and the kingdom come and his will be done in our nation, in our world. I would love to see these things, but what I'm afraid of is that I'm too locked up and I'm paralyzed. And I'm afraid a lot of us are. We see ourselves in Simon, right? So what do we do? Maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're listening and you're hearing me be honest and say, yeah, I'm afraid that this is where I'm at. And you're saying, yeah, I'm afraid this is where I'm at too. What do we do? What do we do? So the rest of the passage is actually really awesome because Peter tells Simon what to do. Look at, look at this, verse 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. What does he say? Repent and pray. You can't fix your heart. If your heart's not right, if you don't want what God wants, guess what? We can't make a list of priorities and put it up on our fridge and that'll change everything. That's not how it works. I can't fix myself. I can't wake myself up out of this spiritual paralysis. I don't have that kind of power. But God does. And if we come to him and we repent and we say, God, I'm sorry, I want to turn the other way, I think, if I'm honest with you, I want what I want more than I want what you want. Then God is faithful. And he will wake us up, and he will use us, and he will make us want what he wants. He's faithful. He doesn't abandon us. And so this, this is what Peter tells Simon is he says, just be honest. Just come to God and say, look, I don't, I don't think my heart's right. I, I need you to help me get straight here. Look at... <laughs> Look at what Simon says in verse 24. It's really interesting. Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Listen, y'all. We do this all the time. Just like I was saying, we don't want Jesus. We just want the benefits. And this is where Simon's at. He doesn't actually want a relationship with Jesus. He doesn't want the Spirit so that he can have a living, breathing, abiding relationship with the God of the universe. He doesn't want a relationship. He just wants the benefits, right? Now Peter says, because of what you've said and because of where your heart is, you're going to face the consequences. I think so many of us just follow Jesus because we're afraid of the consequences of not following Jesus. 
And Peter says, Simon, this is what you have to do. You have to pray and repent. You have to come honest before God and just tell him where you're at. And Simon says, can you do it for me? I don't feel like talking to him. I, I don't even know the guy. I just wanted the power. <laughs> Almost like what Simon's saying here, right? Can you pray for me so that I don't have to face the consequences? It's really interesting. I mean, if you read commentaries on this passage, some people will say, it's interesting that we don't really know whatever happened to Simon, but I think it's pretty clear where Simon's heart is right now. He said, I, I didn't really care to have anything to do with this Jesus guy. I just wanted the power. I just wanted the benefits. And now you're telling me that there's consequences to be paid, and I don't want to pay those either, so can you talk to him? <laughs> and if we're real, that's a lot of us a lot of the time. And so I, I know that this has been a hard message, but this is a hard passage. And we just have to deal with it, right? This is the beautiful thing about walking through a book of the Bible is it just it comes up and we just have to deal with it. And so this morning as the worship team comes up, what I want us to do is exactly what Peter told Simon to do. If you see yourself in this story like I did this week, and you say, man, I, th I think I want what I want more than I want what God wants. I think I want to build my kingdom more than I want to see God's kingdom come and his will be done. Then let's pray. Right now. Like, let's not wait. Let's not put it off. Let's pray. And let's repent. And let's say, God, this is where I'm at. Can you help? If you'll close your eyes and bow your heads with me. I'm not going to give you the words to say. I just want you to come, if you, if you see yourself in this story, I just want you to come before God and just be honest. Just say, God, I, I don't know if I want you and I want your mission. I think I just want the benefits. I think I'm just trying to avoid consequences. I don't, I don't think I want what you want, but, but God, I want to. God, that, that you would rearrange my heart and my desires that they might look more like yours. That I would want the things that you want. encourage you to pray that right now. God, we, we come to you and we repent. We're sorry for making this all about us. For coming to you to get what we want. Jesus, I'm sorry. 
Jesus, I really do want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you that you're faithful and that when we come to you honestly, that all it takes is just one step in your direction and you run the rest of the way. So God, as we bring our hearts before you, we just pray that you would work on us. God, that you would give us, that you would show us your vision, your dreams for our lives, that you would show us the way that you want us to live things out, that we might, by the power of your Spirit, see your kingdom come here in our lives, in our families, in our city, in our world. Jesus, that we wouldn't come to you because of what you offer us or, or, to, or, or to escape consequences, but that, Jesus, we would come to you because you are you and you're worthy and you're worth it. Jesus, I pray that you would use church at Cane Bay, that you would wake us up from our spiritual locked-in syndrome and that you would use us however you see fit God, that your kingdom would multiply in this region and that that would bleed into us sending missionaries and church plants all over the globe, God, that your kingdom would come. God, we don't want to just keep adding to this place and I don't want to just keep adding to my life. I want what you want. And that's for your kingdom and your glory and your mission. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would work in us, that you might wake us up and use us. We pray all these things in the holy name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen.